Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the NDF Speaker Series. My name is Daniel Baruchim. I've been volunteering as an ambassador to the organization for over a year now. One of our many goals within the ambassador committee is to educate people about GNE myopathy. NDF is an organization that means a lot to me, and I am so proud to see other clinical research for HIBM has evolved over the years. And I'm Elliot Saidi, an NDF ambassador and volunteer. Today, I'm delighted to introduce Esti Rose, who will be conducting today's seminar, Getting to Know Your Genes. Esti is a certified genetic counselor and outreach coordinator for JScreen, a nonprofit Jewish genetic disease screening program. Esti graduated from Yeshiva University's Stern College and received her master's in genetic counseling from the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. I'm very excited to have her here with us today. We will conclude today's event with Q&A. Please feel, feel free to write your questions in the message box at any time throughout the presentation. Welcome, Esti. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, can everybody see my screen? Daniel, can I get a thumbs up? Yes. Oh, yeah, we're good, okay. Um, so the title of today's talk is called Getting to Know Your Genes. So what I'll be doing today, if I can move my screen, sorry. All right, what I'll be doing today is I'll be introducing myself and what I do as a genetic counselor. Then we'll talk about different types of genetic testing that we do at JScreen and how the JScreen process works. Um, and as Daniel mentioned, we'll have a Q&A uh, at the end of the talk. So I always like to start my talk um, by explaining what a genetic counselor is. Um, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about what genetic counselors do. Some people think that we make you know AI and robots and we genetically engineer people to be you know what we want them to be but that, that's not at all what we do. Um, I have a master's degree in genetic counseling um, which is a two years master's program um, where I was taught human genetics and also how to counsel people about about genetic diseases and what to do with them. So my degree is a little bit twofold because it's the science, but it's also learning how to speak to people, especially people who are going through a crisis or going through a difficult time. Um, you might see genetic counselors in many different areas of medicine. And I think that over the course of time, you're gonna see even more of us in different areas um, as genetics becomes a more um, serious part of medicine and um, a more sought out part of medicine. Um, probably the most common places as of now that you'll see a genetic counselor would be in the reproductive realm and also the cancer and pediatric realms. Um, in the pediatric realm, um, you might see a genetic counselor if your child is having um, issues where maybe they're not meeting the developmental milestones that they're supposed to be meeting at that point in their life. Um, if they have certain facial features or certain um, behavioral characteristics where the doctor is concerned that perhaps there's something syndromic or genetic going on. Um, in the cancer realm, you might see a genetic counselor if somebody has a personal or a strong family history of different types of cancer, where we might be concerned that maybe these cancers are not ha happening spontaneously, but they might be due to some kind of a genetic change that's running through the family. Today, I'm going to focus more on reproductive um, genetics. Um, in the reproductive realm, um, there's carrier screening, which I'm going to discuss in a lot of detail today, but there's also pregnancy-related genetics. So, um, for example, um, if a couple is pregnant and they might do an ultrasound and there might be some ultrasound findings, they might speak with a genetic counselor um, who will talk to them about what we're concerned or what we're worried might be happening with the baby, um, different tests that they can do to determine exactly what's happening, um, and then we'll review those results with them. 
Um, in the carrier screening realm, which is what I'm going to discuss today, um, we're talking about testing people prior to a pregnancy uh, to see um, what they might be at risk um, to have in their family. So what is genetic testing? So you might remember from high school biology, or you might not remember, and that's okay, we're going to remind you today, that each and every one of our genes has a specific sequence of what it's supposed to look like. So we have a really good map of all the 30,000 genes in our body and what they're supposed to look like. The sequence or what the gene is supposed to look like must be precise in order for the gene to work. So if there's a little spelling mistake, that can alter the functionality of the gene. So it must look exactly like the template of what it's supposed to look like. And if it doesn't look like that, that potentially could cause a health problem in a person, whether it's a baby or an adult. If there is a change in the sequence and it doesn't look like it's supposed to look, either it could be associated with a disease, which is what we call a genetic mutation, or it could just be a benign variation in the gene. Sometimes change is not always a bad thing. Um, you might have blue eyes, I might have green eyes, right? So those are genetic changes that are not bad. They're not related to a disease. And sometimes we'll find a genetic change that is just not well understood. We're not quite sure what it means. Maybe in a couple of years, we'll learn more information about it. But at this point in time, we just don't know enough about that change in the gene and what it potentially could be related to. When somebody does genetic testing, there are many different possible results that they can get. The first type of result that they can get is a positive result, which basically means that there is a finding. Depending on which kind of test somebody is doing, the positive finding is going to mean something else. So some tests that we do are what we call diagnostic tests. That's the first one that I have listed there, where we're concerned that somebody has a genetic condition. We do a genetic test, the results are positive, which means you have that condition. So I wrote a couple of examples. Um, so for example, if we are concerned that somebody has gene myopathy, they might do a genetic test where we find the genetic mutations that cause it and we say, you have it or you have Marfan syndrome, which is a condition that affects people's hearts. Another type of genetic test would be a predictive or pre-symptomatic test, where they don't have that condition right now, meaning they don't have symptoms of that condition, but they still have a genetic change that shows that eventually they will start showing symptoms of that condition. So they're healthy now when they got the test, but it's predictive that in the future, they will start showing symptoms. Um, there's a condition called Huntington's disease, which is a good example of this type of test, where when somebody tests positive and they have a mutation um, before they start showing symptoms, now they know that they for sure have that mutation and they eventually will start showing symptoms. Predisposition testing um, is the type of test where if somebody's positive, it's not a guarantee that they're going to show symptoms like it is with the predictive or pre-symptomatic test like Huntington's. We can't say for sure that the person's going to develop symptoms one day, but they have a higher than average chance to develop those symptoms. So for example, some people get tested for certain cancer genes when they have no diagnosis of cancer themselves. And if they test positive for a cancer gene, it means that they don't have cancer now, but they have a higher chance than average to develop cancer in the future. Unaffected carrier means that a person gets tested and they're positive. They themselves have no symptoms of the condition. They never will get the condition. But if they and their partner both carry the same condition, if they're both unaffected carriers, each of their children will have a chance to actually have the condition. So they don't have to worry about their own health. They will never have the condition, but there is a possibility that their kids will get the condition if their partner also happens to carry the gene. 
Um, I put a star by that one because that's the one that we're going to focus on today. So the point of this slide is just to show that when somebody said, I did genetic testing, I have this thing, there are nuances to it. And every type of genetic test is different. And we as genetic counselors, we need to dig deeper and try to find out exactly what they mean when they say they got tested, because that will help us better analyze and um, interpret what those results mean. But again, today we're going to speak about that last category, the unaffected ca uh, carrier category. Um, other types of results that you might see with genetic testing are negative results. Um, most of the time, we see negative results. So um, most people who do any type of genetic test will not test positive for something. Um, a negative result basically means there is no finding, things are looking good. Um, anytime somebody has a negative result, um, we always have to be aware that there could be what we call a residual risk, which means that not every test is perfect. And even when somebody tests negative, there's always still a teeny tiny chance that the person actually is positive, but the test was unable to pick it up because that's a limitation of genetic testing. Um, in addition to that, sometimes, even though negative results are generally considered to be a good thing, um, it could be difficult to interpret because sometimes we really, really think that somebody's going to test positive for something and then they don't. And then there's a, still a mystery, right? We still can't figure out exactly what's going on with that person. So even though it's good to be negative, sometimes it's not so good because you're kind of back at square one and you still need to figure out what's going on. The third possible result that you might see with genetic testing is an uncertain result, which I mentioned earlier. Um, we call that a VUS, um, uh, which is short for variant of uncertain significance, which basically means that there's a change in the gene, but we're not quite there yet in our science knowledge to know exactly what that change means. Um, and every now and then we'll find incidental findings, which is basically a positive result for something we weren't really looking for. So it uh, could be a surprise to some people to find certain things out um, when they do genetic testing, because sometimes we find things that um, we kind of peripherally see that we weren't really looking for. So let's talk about the reproductive carrier screening. So uh, you might remember the Punnett squares from school. Um, Punnett squares to show us what is the chance for a carrier couple to have a condition with a genetic disease. So as I mentioned earlier, when somebody is a carrier for a recessive condition, they themselves generally don't have any symptoms of the condition. They never will have symptoms of the condition. They're generally healthy people. And most people, therefore, don't even know that they're carriers because they have no medical signs to show it. However, when we have a carrier couple, which means when the man and the woman both carry the same exact condition, every time they have a pregnancy, there's a 25% chance, that's this little boy in the green, um, for that child to be affected. So there's a 75% chance or a three in four chance that the child will not be affected with this condition. They might be carriers just like the parents, but they shouldn't be affected. And there's a 25% chance or one in four chance for the child to actually have symptoms of that condition. I just want to note that this one in four number is totally independent for each and every pregnancy. So it doesn't mean that if somebody has four kids, one of four of them will have the condition and the other three definitely won't. It doesn't mean that. Every single pregnancy is totally independent of the pregnancies before and after that. And each pregnancy has that 25 or one in four chance, 25% or one in four chance. Most people who are born with a heredi uh, heritable genetic disease have parents who have no family history of the disease. About 80% of babies who have these types of conditions, it's a surprise. And the reason is because their parents are carriers who have no symptoms, and their parents and siblings and other people in their family are probably also carriers, and they had no symptoms, so most people have no idea that it's running in the family. It's not so likely for carrier couples to get together 
but it happens every now and then. So the carrier's status is being passed down from generation to generation to generation, but it usually never comes out or shows itself in the family because most of the time, carriers don't get together with other carriers. That's pretty rare. So the diseases are rare, but being a carrier is not necessarily that rare. Um, therefore, uh, most people that we test at JScreen actually are carriers. Um, about 75% of the people who come through JScreen end up testing positive as a carrier for at least one disease. So it's, again, very common to be a carrier, not as common to see a carrier couple or people or babies who actually have this condition or the condition that we're talking about. Um, but it could happen, which is exactly why we think it's really important for people to get tested when they're planning their family. Some of these recessive conditions are ethnic specific. When I say ethnic specific, um, here's some examples. I don't mean to say that these conditions only happen in people of the ethnicities that I listed. What I mean to say is that they're just more common in those ethnicities. So one of the really common examples that you might've heard of is Tay-Sachs disease. Tay-Sachs disease, you'll commonly see carriers in Jews who are Ashkenazi Jewish or Eastern European Jewish. Um, you might see it also in uh, French Canadians and Louisiana Cajuns. Just because it's more common in people from those ethnicities doesn't mean that it's exclusive to people from those ethnicities. So anybody could be a Tay-Sachs carrier. Anybody can be a sickle cell carrier. Anybody can be a cystic fibrosis carrier. It's just more common in people um, who are you know, from these ethnicities that I have listed here. So here's another example of the one that we're going to kind of focus on today, um, and it's called GNE myopathy. Um, some people call it hereditary inclusion body myopathy or inclusion body myopathy too. They're all the same thing. Um, this condition is caused by mutations in the GNE gene. So when somebody is a carrier for GNE myopathy, they don't have any symptoms as discussed earlier. But when we have a carrier couple for GNE myopathy, where both the mom and the dad carry mutations in this GNE gene, then there'd be a one in four chance for each of their kids to actually be affected with it. Um, this is a progressive uh, muscle issue. Um, people who have it are born healthy and they're fine, but usually when they get into their 20s or 30s, they'll start to see um, a progressive um, wasting of their muscles. Uh, many people who have the condition end up in a wheelchair at some point, so they're usually, like I mentioned before, totally fine until they get a little bit older, and that's when they're going to start seeing that their muscles are getting weaker. Um, GNE myopathy is an example of a condition that is more common in certain ethnicities. Here you can see I listed a bunch of ethnicities. It's not a very common condition in most people, but you'll see here for people who are Middle Eastern, especially Middle Eastern Jewish, um, the carrier rate is, is much higher than it is for people of other ethnicities. So my point is, while it is more common in people of Middle Eastern background, it's not exclusive to people of Middle Eastern background. None of these numbers are zero, okay? So anybody could be a carrier and therefore everybody who's planning to have a child should get tested regardless of what their background is. So it's not just people who are Middle Eastern, everybody should get tested for this condition. When we do find a carrier couple where both couples, or where both members of the, uh, the couple are carriers for GNE myopathy or really any of the other conditions that we're testing for, um, they'll speak to a genetic counselor who will run through the different options that they have um, to kind of deal with that information and to plan for a healthy future. So I listed out some of these options. They're not in any order. I'm not saying that the one at the top is the best and the one at the bottom is the worst. It's really in no particular order. 
Um, the first one that I have listed here is disqualification before dating. So if we find a carrier couple who compared their results before they even started dating and they saw that they were a carrier couple, they could just say, let's not even bother going out. We don't need to get to know each other. This is not going to work out. This is pretty limiting, actually, uh, this, this option, because this can only work if you compare your results before you even met. Um, usually, that's not what we see at GeoScreen. Usually, um, couples who are already uh, who are found to be carrier couples already are a couple, right? They're already somewhat committed to each other, um, but some couples might decide to break up if they see that they are a carrier couple. Um, other couples will decide not to break up and they just might decide not to have children together um, or not to have biological children. They might decide to adopt. Um, other couples might decide to use a gamete donor. Um, a gamete is either an egg or a sperm. So if somebody is a if we have a carrier couple, they might decide to use an egg donor or a sperm donor who obviously has been tested and is not a carrier of said condition. Um, so then we don't have to worry about it being a carrier couple anymore. Um, using a donor um, is not so simple. Um, it, it's, it's kind of a big deal for people to go through a donor. Um, the parent who is not, who's genetics are not being used um, is not going to be the biological parents of that child. Um, but it, I think, you know, in some cases, it, it is a really good option for some couples. Um, another option that couples have when they find out that they're a carrier couple is to take a chance and say, listen, there's a three in four or 75% chance everything's going to be okay. There's a 25% chance it won't. We're going to roll the dice and hope it doesn't happen to us. Um, if a couple decides to take a chance, um, we do recommend that during the pregnancy, they do something called prenatal testing. So I'm going to switch to the next slide. I'm going to show you a little picture of what I mean when I say prenatal testing. So here's a picture of a pregnancy. So here's a baby. The baby is attached by the umbilical cord over here to the placenta, which is um, inside the mother's uterus. Um, as early as 11 weeks in a pregnancy, so towards the very end of the first trimester, there is a test that a carrier couple can do that can help them determine whether or not the fetus is affected. So if you have no idea, but you know that you have a high chance because you're a carrier couple, you could do this test. It's called a CVS or chorionic villus sampling. What they do is the doctor takes a needle, they put it through the placenta, and they take out a tiny bit of the placenta. Whatever is going on in the placenta should reflect what's going on in the baby. So it's basically a way of getting baby cells without actually touching the baby. All of this is done under ultrasound guidance, so they see exactly where they're going with that needle. Um, after the procedure, um, they send the little piece of placenta to the lab, and then the lab can tell us whether or not the baby has the condition, whether or not they have both mutations, you know, or if they're affected. Um, a little bit later on in a pregnancy, if a couple didn't know at 11 weeks and they only know a little bit later on in a pregnancy that they're a carrier couple, there's a similar test that they can do called an amniocentesis, where they take a needle, put it through the belly, same idea, but instead of taking placenta, they take out some amniotic fluid, um, which also has baby cells floating in it. They send it off to the lab, and then the lab would tell us whether or not this is a baby who has the condition. So both of these tests, the CVS and amniocentesis, is the same idea. They're just done at a different time in the pregnancy. And both of them would tell us that yes or no, the baby has it or the baby doesn't have it. If the baby doesn't have the condition, that's great. You never have to worry about it again in that child. You know that it's not a child with the two mutations, one from mom and one from dad. But if you see that the baby does have the mutations um, and the baby is affected, 
you know, the couple will have to think about, you know, how they're going to handle that information. Um, in certain areas, they might have the option to terminate a pregnancy that's affected. Um, in certain areas, that may no, that may no longer be an option. Um, some people would say, okay, now that we know the child's affected, we're going to do our research and meet with doctors and do as much, you know, have as much education about the condition as we can so that we can plan, you know, for caring for this baby. And, you know, you have a couple months until the baby's born to do all of that research. So, um, you know, if a couple decides to take a chance, they have this option of doing prenatal testing uh, with one of those two tests. Um, just so you know, either of those two tests do come with a slight risk of miscarriage. About one in 500 people uh, or women who have either of these procedures will have a miscarriage because of it. The last option that we discuss with our carrier couples is to do in vitro fertilization or IVF with pre-implantation genetic testing or PGT. I know it's a mouthful, so allow me to explain. I'm going to go to the next slide to show you a picture. So in vitro fertilization um, is a process that you might have, you might already be familiar with, or you might have heard of before. Um, usually um, you hear of it in the context of a couple who's having trouble getting pregnant or having trouble conceiving. Um, what an IVF process looks like is that the woman gives an egg sample, the man gives a sperm sample. They put it together in the lab in a Petri dish and they let the sperm fertilize the egg in the lab. And eventually it should create an embryo. And then the embryo grows for a few days and then they take that embryo and they implant it into the woman's uterus and hopefully it takes right hopefully she gets pregnant with that embryo and it becomes a baby what i'm suggesting here when we have a carrier couple who know that they're at high risk to have a child with one of these conditions they would undergo the exact same ivf procedure that an infertile couple might undergo but they add in one step towards the very end of the whole process and that step is called pre-implantation genetic testing or pgt so once that embryo is created and it's growing for a few days, they take a pipette, which is, this is a close-up of a pipette, and they pull out a couple of the cells of that embryo. And they can actually do genetic testing on those cells. So you can see if this is an embryo that has both mutations, an embryo that would be affected with the condition, or if it's an embryo that does not have the condition. If they see that it's an embryo that does not have it, 75 or 3 percent chance or three and four chance, they'll take that embryo and continue the IVF process where they implant the embryo into the woman's uterus and hopefully she'll have a successful pregnancy. One that we know is not going to be affected with the condition. Um, if they see that the embryo is affected with the condition, they'll discard it in the lab. They'll never implant it. It will never become a baby. So this is a way for a couple um, to make the decision to only implant embryos that they know are unaffected. They're not going to have to worry about ever, you know, dealing with that child having the condition. As you can see, a lot of these options are only available to couples before they're pregnant. Some of them you can't do if you're already pregnant, right? You can't say, let's not have children if you're already pregnant, for example. Or you can't say, we should do IVF once you're already pregnant. So that's why I always recommend that people do their carrier screening before pregnancy, because just in case there is a problem and the couple is at risk for something, um, they'll have more options available to them if they're not already pregnant. Who should get carrier screening? I would say anybody. Anybody planning to have a family in the future should get carrier screening. It's not exclusive to one ethnic background. It's not exclusive to only people who are Jewish. It's really anybody um, who's planning to have a child, even same-sex couples or interfaith couples, anybody planning to have a child should get tested. In the United States, they must be at least 18 years old to get the test done. I'm not sure what it is internationally. When should carrier screening occur? Um, as I mentioned earlier, before a pregnancy is always better. 
it could be done during a pregnancy. It's just a blood test or a saliva test. So it technically could be done during a pregnancy, but it could be a very stressful for people to find out that they're carriers or carrier couples when they're already pregnant, that could put a stress on the pregnancy. And B, as I mentioned, they'll have fewer options available to them um, if they're already pregnant. The timing really will differ among different couples. So in some um, social circles, it's appropriate to test during an engagement or before an engagement. Some people wait till after they're married. I don't really care when you do it as long as it's done before a pregnancy. And by the way, when I say before a pregnancy, I don't only mean the first pregnancy, I mean any pregnancy. So even if a couple already has a child and they're planning for another pregnancy, it's always a good idea for them to check in with us just to see if the testing that we've done has been updated since their first time that they were tested. Because if it has been updated, we would recommend that they get a new test. When I say updated, that can either refer to using a better technology or it can refer to testing for more conditions. Um, over the course of time, we try to improve what we did you know, in the past. So it's very possible that a couple who was tested five or six years ago might need to get retested with a more update test. So bottom line, when should somebody do carrier screening? Before any pregnancy, they should make sure that their carrier screening is up to date. And I'm referring to anybody planning for a pregnancy. Doesn't make a difference where they're from or who they're with. Everybody planning for a pregnancy should get carrier screening done. Where can you get carrier screening? So I'm based in the US, so I'm gonna focus on that. Um, we can get tested at JScreen. Um, towards the end of this talk, I will explain to you how our process works. Uh, we're basically an at-home testing uh, service. Um, some people will decide to meet with a genetic counselor in their office close by. Um, they can also get their carrier screening done there. Um, I would recommend that if somebody has a family history or personal history, something a little bit more specific to them, and they might need additional testing beyond the general get tested for everything, just like everybody else, um, that they go to see a genetic counselor. Um, some people might decide to get tested by their doctor, whether it's their OBGYN or their internist, that's fine too. Um, I will say that if somebody does go to their doctor, it's always a good idea to just question them and ask them what kind of test they're doing, because some physicians might not be so up to date about the tests that are available, um, and they might be doing an older test. So it's totally fine to go to a doctor, but just do your homework before you order anything through them and just make sure that they're doing a really, you know, up to date kind of test. Uh, I put in big bold letters, not 23andMe and the like. Um, you might have heard of 23andMe before. Um, they are an at-home direct-to-consumer testing company where you can spit into a tube, mail it back to the lab, and they'll tell you a lot of information. They'll tell you your ancestry breakdown. Um, they'll tell you about some genetic traits. They'll tell you about whether you're a carrier for a couple of genetic conditions. Um, I do not recommend that people use 23andMe um, for the carrier section of their testing um, because the technology that they're using is very outdated and their testing is also very limited. Um, at JScreen and at other places that are doing more thorough genetic testing, um, we're using an excellent technology that has a 99% uh, detection rate. And we're also screening for many, many conditions. Um, specifically at JScreen, we're screening for over 220. Um, at 23andMe, they're using a more um, old school type of uh, technology, and they're only screening for about 20 or so conditions. So while 23andMe is fun and you know interesting to see your ancestry, go ahead with that. That's fine with me. But for the genetic portion where we tell people where they tell people if they're a carrier for things or not, um, I would not rely on those results. And I would say to use a medical grade test like JScreen, for example, um, when you're ready to plan for your family. 
Um, outside the U.S., honestly, I don't know so much about it because every place um, or every country that I've spoken to um, has totally different laws and rules about who orders the test and how you ship it overseas. So I don't have that much information about it. Um, I do have some contacts in some labs overseas, so I'm happy to try to help you out if you'd like some more information. Um, at the end of this talk, you'll have you'll get my contact information. So please feel free to reach out if you have any questions. Okay, a little bit about cancer testing. So switching gears here. Um, okay, so not all cancers are genetic. Actually, most cancers are not genetic. Um, as you can see here, if uh, cancer was this whole pie, most cases of cancer are sporadic and only a small percentage of them are hereditary. Okay, but when somebody has a mutation in a cancer gene, that would mean that they have an increased risk for cancer. So here is the general population risk for cancer. Here is somebody who has a mutation in one of their cancer genes. So as you can see, having a genetic change in one of our cancer genes causes you to have a higher than normal chance to get cancer. So the most common example that people have probably heard of is called the BRCA1 gene or the BRCA1 gene. If somebody has a mutation in their BRCA1 gene, they have an increased risk for certain types of cancer. Females who have these mutations have a greatly increased risk for breast cancer over the general population, a greatly increased risk for ovarian cancer, and a pretty significant increased risk for pancreatic cancer. Males who have the mutation also have an increased risk, and that is for male breast cancer, prostate cancer, and also pancreatic cancer. So as you can see here, the general population risk or the average person's risk for all of these cancers are not very high. But if they have a mutation in the BRCA1 gene, their risks are a lot higher. They're not 100%, nobody's up here, but the risks are significantly higher, especially for breast cancer and obesity cancer. If a woman or a man finds out that they have a positive result, that they are a carrier for a BRCA1 mutation, it could be really helpful information to them because there's often a lot that they can do about it to get ahead of these risks. So, for example, they might decide to do more increased cancer screenings. So they might decide to start doing their mammograms at a younger age than a woman might normally do. Or they might decide to do their mammograms or breast MRIs more often than typically a woman might do. Um, let's say they have an, let's say it's a different cancer gene that has, that's associated with colon cancer. They might start colonoscopies earlier and do them more often than typically somebody might do. Um, another option that we give cancer, uh, genetic mutation carriers um, is to do a preventative surgery to remove the organ of concern um, if that's possible. It's not always possible with everything, but for example, um, if a woman finds out that she has a high chance for breast cancer, she might decide to do a risk-reducing mastectomy um, or an oophorectomy where she removes the ovaries. Um, the whole point of this is because they know that they have a high risk, let's do the surgery and remove the breast tissue or the ovarian tissue. And if you do that, you're gonna greatly reduce the chances of actually getting that condition. Um, it also could be helpful to people who already have a diagnosis for certain cancers to know whether it's a genetic form of cancer versus a sporadic or spontaneous form of cancer. Uh, because in some cases, there are certain medications that work better for people who have certain mutations. So if we're able to identify a mutation in somebody with a diagnosis, that can help us figure out what the best course of treatment might be for that person. Um, in addition to that, if somebody has a cancer mutation and they're planning on having children and they want to ensure that they don't pass along that mutation to their children, um, they might decide to undergo IVF with PGT, which we spoke about a little bit earlier, where they create the embryo outside the body and they can do genetic testing on it before they implant it. 
Um, so if a family, whether it's a mother or a father who's a carrier, just wants to be super careful about not testing it on, they also have that option when they're planning for their families. Um, it's really, really important when somebody has a cancer mutation that they share it with their family members, um, you know, as comfortable as they are to do that. Um, we always recommend that they share the information because genetics is a family affair. And if you know important information about yourself, you can also help other people in your family uh, kind of deal with that risk if they have it as well. Most of the cancer gene mutations are what we call dominant, which means that if somebody has the mutation, there's a 50% chance for them to pass it to each of their kids. Doesn't make a difference if their child is male or female, a male or female can have a mutation. So again, if somebody has a mutation, there's a 50% chance that they're gonna pass it to each of their kids. If they do pass it to their kids, then their kids will have those exact same risks that they have. So who should get tested for cancer genes? Um, back in the good old days of genetic testing, uh, we were very conservative with who we tested. Um, we only offered it to people that we really, really, really thought might be positive. So if they have a personal history of cancer, um, especially at a young age, or if they have a family history where the same cancers keep popping up in the family, um, then we would recommend that they get tested. Um, it used to be very expensive to test people. The insurance coverage is really complex, but uh, we've come a really long way. Um, and now the testing is a lot more affordable and it's a lot easier to do the testing. So I believe it. G screen on we all believe um, that really anybody who wants the information, anybody who wants to know if they have an increased chance for cancer, um, we're going to let them do the test. So as long as they're 21 years or older, um, they are welcome to do the test if they're interested. Um, a little bit about JScreen. JScreen is only available to people in the United States. So this is um, a little screenshot of our website. Um, if you go to our website, we have two different testing options. We have the ReproGen test. That's the first part of our conversation. And the cancer gen test uh, refers to what we discussed in the second part. Um, our ReproGen test um, is a test that looks at 226 genes to see if you are a carrier for any of them. GNE myopathy is one example. KFAX is another, but there are many, many more. Um, Generally speaking, when somebody's positive, it just means that they're a carrier and we recommend that their partner would get tested um, just to see if there's that one in four chance for their children to be affected. The cancer gen test um, is different and it's totally different. So when you go to the website, you pick one or the other or both, but they're done on totally different testing platforms. They're actually done in different labs um, where we're testing for 63 different cancer predisposition genes. So it's not just BRCA1, um, there's 62 other genes that we're testing for currently. The way that JScreen process, the way that the JScreen process works, is that you go onto our website uh, www.jscreen.org. You request a kit. Uh, most of the time, people could do it from home. Sometimes we have screening events, so we go on the road and we'll go to college campuses or synagogues, um, and we'll do a, a live event. But most people come through um, by just doing it from their home. Um, I will tell you right now that we have a coupon code that anybody uh, here is welcome to use and to share with their friends. Um, JScreen50 is the coupon code, and it will take $50 off the, the cost of the kit. Um, people who are ordering the ReproGen test, um, their cost of the test is $149 if they use insurance. Um, people who are ordering the cancer gen test is $199 if they're using insurance. Uh, this is as of today, which is uh, the beginning of September 2022, but you know, the prices might change. Um, but with this coupon code, um, $50 will be taken off. So they go to the website, they register for their kit, they give us their information, they give us their doctor's information. Um, in most states, it is required that an MD or GO orders the test for their, for their patients. So you can't just order it for yourself. You have to get a, do a doctor to sign off on it. So you give us your doctor's information and we coordinate that testing order from your doctor. 
Once we get that information and the payment, uh, we send you a fit kit in the mail. You fit into the tube, you send it off in the mail, and then we get the results at JScreen and we will let you know when they're ready. And we will give you the option to discuss your results either by phone or by Zoom. So anybody in the country can do this test. Um, you don't have to go anywhere to get it done. You don't have to meet live with a genetic counselor. Everything is done at home through telehealth. Um, once the results are ready and we speak to you about them, then we'll send them to your doctor. So your doctor is involved throughout the process. Um, if there is anything that needs extra attention, uh, we'll also speak to your doctor and try to make sure that you're being totally taken care of and that the proper follow-up is done. And here's my contact information, as I promised before. So if anybody has any specific questions that they'd like to ask me, um, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm always available, um, better by email. So you can just shoot me an email whenever you need. Uh, just some key takeaways from today's lecture. Number one is that anyone who is planning on having a child should have carrier screening. Doesn't matter where they're from or what type of background they have. Um, testing before pregnancy is ideal. Um, there are options for at-risk couples, so they do not need to break up. It doesn't mean they can't have children. Um, they'll have to learn about their different options and do what works best for them. Um, and finally, cancer genetic testing can help you and your family get ahead of your risks um, by, by learning and, and knowing what you might be at risk for. And now I will open up the floor to Q&A. Thanks, Esty. Uh, extremely insightful presentation and a great summary. I think one of the exciting things about this is that with time and proper screening, um, we should hopefully be able to eradicate uh, eventually a lot of these genetic diseases, including GNE myopathy. Um, so to all the participants, feel free to, to uh, add any questions in the chat. We'll be going through them one by one. Um, I guess I can kick it off, Esty. One of the questions that I had um, regarding CVS, <clears throat> the chorionic uh, villus sampling, does that show any other uh, genetic abnormalities or is it specifically tailored to GNE myopathy for, you know, can you kind of do a one size fits all test to potentially identify other issues? So that's a good question. Um, a CVS could diagnose anything, but you have to ask for it. So they don't just give you a report. These are all the things that you're positive for. You ask specifically for one thing, something that you're concerned about, and then you'll get the results for that. So if we have a carrier couple for GNE myopathy, when you do the CVS and you send it to the lab, you say, look for GNE myopathy. Um, there are other things that you could look for. You could look for Down syndrome. You can look for other chromosomal problems like trisomy 18 or 13. Um, you could look for Tay-Sachs. You know, there are so many things that you could order, but you have to be specific when you do the order or it's not going to tell you everything they see. Got it. Okay. Um, another question we got is, what are the symptoms of HIBM? So I mentioned it a little bit earlier. HIBM is, is a little bit interesting. It's a little bit different than some of the other conditions that we're testing for because most people who have it don't have any symptoms until they're already adults. Um, so they go their whole childhood and teenage years not even knowing that they necessarily have it. And then usually when they're in their early 20s or so, they might start to realize that they're having muscle weakness um, in their proximal muscles, so like arms, legs. Um, and over the course of years, it gets more serious and the, the weakness gets stronger, which doesn't really make sense, but the, the, it becomes more and more weak over time. Um, and people who have HIVM or GNA myopathy um, end up needing help walking. So they usually end up in a wheelchair. Uh, another question we just got in the chat is, do we die with the same genes that we're born with? And I'll maybe add on to that. I know that your genes, there's gene variances as we go 
you know, throughout our lives, but maybe just talk a little bit about uh, the variation in our genetics uh, as we age and, yeah. and- Yeah, that's a really good question, Ellie. And, I, and you said it just right. You know, we're born with all of our genes in every cell of our body. So they're the same thing that, you know, they're all the same, but over time, there are environmental things that could mutate our genes, right? So pollution or radiation or aging, you know, there definitely are external things that can change our genes, um, but it doesn't necessarily change every single gene in your body or every, it might not affect every single cell in your body. So for example, like aging might cause issues with leukemia, let's just say, for example, where your leukemia genes over the course of time, as you age, just have, they, they become broken basically, right? And because of that, you would have a higher chance of getting leukemia. Um, so if you were to test the blood, you might see certain changes, but if you were to test somebody's cells in their muscles, it might be, look different. That's because those blood cells changed, but not every single cell in the body. So we definitely have different genes as we age and get older, but um, it's usually like isolated to one part of the body when that happens. Um, another question we just got in, what is the genetic panel name that is used for GNEM? So that's a good question. Um, this is a little bit difficult, but different labs call it different things. So if you look on different labs websites, you might say, oh, I don't see it on this one, but usually it's a pretty common one and you'll see it, that it's probably on every single genetic panel. Um, some, some labs call it GNE myopathy. Some labs call it hereditary inclusion body myopathy. Some labs call it inclusion body myopathy. There might even be more names. It's all the same thing. Um, what's important is that you look at the name of the gene and make sure that that's um, across the board. That should be consistent. And it's called GNE. So as long as you see the GNE gene, it doesn't make a difference what they call the name of the disease. You have to see the gene GNE. Very confusing. People will email me like, I didn't see this on your panel. And, it's, and I say, no, it's there. We just call it something else. Mm -hmm. Another question uh, that we just got, I have GNE. If my spouse does not have a faulty gene, should my son and daughter still have a test to see if they've inherited uh, the, the genetic variation from me? Yeah, so when somebody has GNE myopathy um, or any of these other conditions, it means that both copies of their genes has the mutation. So you only have two copies and if both of them have a mutation, you're gonna pass down a mutation to your child because all you have is a mutation to pass down. You don't have any normal copies. So somebody who has GNE myopathy um, will 100% pass down a mutated gene to their child because all they have is mutated copies of the gene. So their children are what we're gonna call obligate carriers. So we know for sure that they're gonna be carriers. Um, so should they be tested? We know that they're gonna be carriers, that's the answer, but they should be tested for everything else, right? So if they're planning on having children, it's not just gene myopathy. As I mentioned, we have a much larger panel with over 200 conditions. They, they should get tested because of those ones, um, even though we know that they're gonna be carriers for gene myopathy. It's always a good idea to get tested for everything. Mm -hmm. Great. We have another question here, uh, which says, is there anything we can do to change our genes? Uh, and maybe I'll add on to that. I know there's a lot of negative things, positive things like smoking, et cetera, that can be done. Um, and I, I also had the question regarding where we stand with gene therapy. Um, so the original question is, is there anything we can do to change our genes? Uh, maybe tying that into where we're at with gene therapy and, and genetic modification, which I know is uh, 
you know, rapidly changing. Um, but if you can comment on your knowledge of, of that. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of promise um, many years ago, not many, but 15, 20 years ago, like, oh, we'll just, you know, change everybody's genes if they have a disease and we'll cure it. It's actually not as easier said than done. Um, so we're, we're moving along in that path, but I would say pretty slowly. Um, there are a couple of conditions that I'm aware of where gene therapy um, has been approved by the FDA, um, but there's also tons and tons of clinical trials going on. Um, it's it's happening, but very slowly. Hopefully it will continue to move at a quicker pace. Um, I don't know of any gene therapy for GNE myopathy though. Remember that we have these, these genes in every single cell of our body, these billions of cells. So it's really hard to go into every single one and fix a tiny little gene in every single cell. Right. Um, but we're getting there. Yeah, and plus we don't know what could potentially happen if you were even able to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, who knows? Like, it's something that's approved now. Who knows if, what kind of effects it might have in 30 years from now? Right. Yeah. What about treatment, Esty? Um, is there any focus by NDF on, on treatment? Or is that, is that, what are your thoughts there? So I think that for this particular condition, well, there's definitely no cure for it, but treatment would be just dealing with the symptoms one by one, the physical therapy, you know, things like that. Um, I'm not aware of what's going on at NDF and what kind of research they might be involved with. And maybe one of you can answer to that. Um, but um, yeah, I think it's more just, you know, supportive treatment and therapies at this point. Yeah. And obviously a lot more effective if you can just kind of nip it in the bud. Yeah. Great. Well, I want to say thank you to everyone who tuned in today. And again, thank you to Esty for joining us and providing us with such a great presentation and all this amazing knowledge. Um, Elliot, thank you. And hope you all have a great rest of your day. Um, thanks so much.